Our scripture reading today is from Luke 6, verses 27 through 36. And this is found on page 862 of the Pew Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at home, um, please take that one home as a gift from us. This is Luke 6, 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and actually I'll... uh, I'll take off my name tag. I don't need that on while I'm speaking, but if you could see that, Bill Gorman here. Um, so glad that each of you are here this morning, especially if this is your first Sunday with us. We're so glad that you've come and that uh, I know walking into a new church for the first time is not always an easy thing to do. And so thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. And as we take a closer look at this passage that Amanda read for us, I'd love to begin by praying together and asking for God's help uh, as we look at the scriptures, his inspired word together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have given us the gift of your word, that you've preserved this, that you've recorded it for us. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit, uh, who is present with us, would make these words uh, come alive for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it all started about a month ago. Rachel and I had just gotten into bed and were drifting off to sleep when when we heard it. It was a sound coming from the opposite wall of our bedroom, which is on the second floor of the house, and we just heard this really loud scratching sound on the wall. And uh, it's like, this sounded like there was an animal scratching on, on the, actually the other side of our plaster wall. Not just like, oh, this sounds like it's outside the house. It actually sounded like there's some animal like inside of our wall. And over the next several weeks, we would be sound asleep in the middle of the night, only to be woken up by this loud scratching sound in the wall. And I would get up and go over to the wall and sort of pound on the wall with my, my fist by where I heard the sound come from. And eventually it would stop and we'd fall back to sleep. Well, we realized, uh, we had someone come out and look at it. We this is a squirrel. We actually realized we have a raccoon that is trying to make its home sort of in up under our eaves. That's not the actual raccoon, but you can imagine that's kind of what it, I'm sure that's what it looks like each night when it goes up there. Uh, and every time at night I'd hear that sound and I'd go over and bang on the wall, I'd be thinking, what is this thing living in my house? So I'm sure the raccoon thinks when I'm banging on the wall, he probably thinks, what is this thing that's living in my house that's banging on the wall all the time? Uh, and now we're working on getting this fixed. We've not trapped the raccoon yet. We had someone bring out a trap so they could trap it and relocate it. So far, we have not trapped this raccoon. Um, but because 
the raccoon is still on the loose, our kids now are actually terrified to go outside. They will not go outside. And for a while, they would not even go to our upstairs bedroom, I think because they feared they would come around the corner and see this uh, greeting them. Uh, they was like, can it get into our house? There was this minute when this one guy told us, I think he was just trying to sell us something, but it could get in your house. Uh, the kids heard that and it was kind of over for them. Uh, and look, I get it, right? Animals are scary, uh, especially when that animal is a raccoon who's trying to make its home inside of your wall. Uh, but then you, know, you see a, a baby raccoon, and it's just hard to hate them, right? They're, they're pretty cute, right? It's hard to make that raccoon a, a, an enemy. They're, they're just living their life. But human beings, on the other hand, right? Like, I'm way more afraid of us as people than I am of any raccoon or any animal, right? Because humans can be mean, cruel, self-centered. We are the ones who invented slavery and genocide and war and abuse. I mean, sure, a rabid raccoon can do some terrible things to you, but, but only a human can mean it, right? Only a human can do it on purpose. And I think there's a good chance that for many of us, there are people in your life that you would gladly trade for a raccoon in your wall. And yet Jesus says to us this morning, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, thankfully for us this morning, we don't have enemies, right? Yeah, it feels so extreme even to say that, to love my enemies. Well, do I have enemies? Am I, am I Batman? Do I have enemies that I'm fighting to defeat? Right? We, we don't have, we don't talk about it like that. We sure we have people who have hurt us. We have people that we're mad at, people that we avoid, but an enemy? And yet that's who we do have in our lives. Whether we use that language or not, we have those people who are incredibly difficult to, to love, and Jesus calls them to love us, or rather to love them. And, and we're all decent enough at loving those who love us back, right? Who reciprocate our love. But what about those people who don't? Who, who not only don't love us back when we try to love them, but who intentionally or unintentionally hurt us. How do we love those people? How do we love when it's hardest? Well, in this passage in Luke chapter 6 this morning, Jesus answers the question of, of how does his community, this new community that he's building, how does this community love even when it's the hardest? And Jesus' community loves differently because Jesus' community loves even when it's hardest. Jesus' community loves differently because it loves even when it is the hardest. And we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together, looking at these key passages. And we're trying to rediscover who Jesus is, to sort of put, put aside our, our kind of preconceived notions, things that we might think about Jesus, and just saying, what is Luke in particular, the gospel, what does Luke reveal to us about who Jesus is? What can we learn here afresh? And here in Luke chapter 6, we're looking at what Jesus teaches about this new community that he's establishing. And this is actually sort of part two of three messages on Luke chapter 6 on what uh, is known as the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. It's also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And in this part, Jesus calls us to a completely different level of love. He calls us to love even when it's the hardest. And there are three questions this morning we want to answer about this different level, this different kind of love that we're called to. And the first question is just who are we called to love? And then how do we love? That's where we'll spend most of our time. And then finally, at the end, why? 
So who and then how and then why do we love differently? Do we love like this? So first, the question is how, or rather, who do we love? Who do we love? Well, we love enemies. Jesus is so clear about this. Sometimes as a Bible teacher, I have the challenge of, of getting up here on a Sunday morning and explaining a really complex or difficult passage that's just, it's, there's a lot of cultural and historical baggage, and you have to figure out, okay, what does this text actually mean? Th- this is not one of those Sundays. Jesus is really clear here. I say to you, love your enemies. The, the challenge for us this morning is not understanding what Jesus is saying, but actually obeying it and, and figuring out what does this look like in our life. Jesus is clear. The, the trouble is we just don't, don't like it. Listen again to verse 27 through 31. Jesus says, But I say to you, all you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now these words that Jesus spoke over 2,000 years ago, they have literally changed the world. I mean, just think of even in most recent history, think of people like Gandhi, whose peaceful protests won freedom for India. Or people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who fought for civil rights through nonviolence. They were both based on the teachings of Jesus here in the Gospels. And yet Jesus here is calling us to something that was completely unprecedented in the ancient world until he spoke these words. No other teacher, no other religion had called for this level of love for enemies. All right, scholars point out, and I think it's easy for us to forget that our culture in the West has been so deeply shaped by kind of the Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview historically that we kind of, this idea of loving your enemies is just sort of, well, that's an ideal that is everyone ought to strive for in our culture. There's kind of that background of that. But we forget that this, is, this was unheard of in Jesus' time. And scholars point out while there are sort of there's ancient sources that have some broad teaching about having compassion for an enemy in need, that Jesus' words to love your enemy lack any commonly held ethical base prior to him. There's simply no other teaching like this before Jesus. Uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle points out that all of the, in all the early church writings in the first few centuries, that these were the most quoted words. These are the most quoted verse. This idea of loving your enemies. It was like there, John 3, 16. Love your enemies profoundly shaped the way that the early church related to the culture around them. And premier historian and New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado uh, explores in depth the question of how did Christians in those early centuries, even in the early generations, go from being a tiny minority group in Jerusalem to within a few generations influencing and infiltrating the entire Roman Empire. And he names in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, he names five key elements that allowed Christians to do this catalyst for this. And, and, and here they are. The first one is this, that the church, the early church was multi-ethnic. The church attracted people from different cultures and backgrounds and classes, which meant that any kind of person could belong. We looked a little bit at that last week in the first message in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But the church was multi-ethnic in a way that no other kind of institution was at that time. Two, they cared for the poor. And we actually have a letter that survived between two Roman citizens at this time of the early church. And, and this is what they, they write. They said, the Christians take care of their own, meaning their fellow Christians, and ours. So the early Christians not only took care of their own people who were poor or in need, but they also turned broadly and were caring for the poor, even who didn't belong to their group. Again, this was unheard of. The early church was absurdly generous to the poor. Three, the early church was positively pro-life. And I say positively because the Romans had two practices, abortion like in our own day, although much more dangerous, but also what was called exposure. So if you had a child that was the wrong gender, and usually that meant that child was a girl, or a deformity, Roman citizens would just expose their, ch their children, their babies, meaning they would just take their baby out into the wilderness, basically put it on a trash heap just to die. And Christians didn't just condemn that practice. They would actually go and rescue those children, adopt them, and bring them into their homes. Fourth, they had a countercultural sexual ethic. In a culture in the Greco-Roman time of incredible um, sexual promiscuity and license, the Christian belief and practice of marriage was particularly liberating for women because men were not allowed within Christianity just to sleep around with whoever they wanted like they were in the broader culture. It provided protection for women and families and a stability of the family. It was a powerful countercultural narrative in the Roman time of that day. And then finally, the early church loved their enemies. That's the fifth factor that Hurtado identifies. They quoted this command to one another, and when they were hauled off to be killed, they prayed for forgiveness of their persecutors. They loved their enemies. And Pastor Tim Keller points out that today, the progressive left loves the first two. They love the idea of multi-ethnicity and caring for the poor. The uh, sort of conservative right tends to like the second two, the idea of a pro-life, pro-family ethic, but neither political party or spectrum likes the fifth one, which is to love our enemies. And this is where Christians transcend the left and the right and why Christians who are deeply biblically rooted will never feel at home or comfortable in either political party at either end of the political spectrum because they are doing their best to do one through four and five. They love differently because they love even when it's hardest. Okay, so... Jesus is clear here on the question of who do we love. We, we are to love everyone, especially our enemies. That's who we love. But how do we love? How do Christians love differently? How do they actually go about doing this? And Jesus shows us at least three practical things in these verses that we are to do. There's so much here. We're going to have to, we can't unpack it all in detail. But three things that Jesus points out particularly. We love prayerfully. We love generously. And we love mercifully. So prayerfully, generously, and mercifully. First, you see this, and this is really the keystone habit, the one practice that enables all the, left, or all the rest, and that is that we love prayerfully. Notice what Jesus says in verse 28. Again, he says, bless those who curse you, and then this is so key, he says, pray for those who abuse you. And that word translated abuse in, uh, in that passage, it, it, it just, it means, the, it's the idea of, um, of someone treating you despicably. And Eugene Peterson translates the message this way. He says, when someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. 
Now, why is this such a keystone habit? Why is prayer the foundation? If we're going to do any of the rest of this, why is prayer so key? There's two, two things here. One, first, it lets us begin where we are. Prayer lets us begin where we are. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his chapter titled Enemies, in his wonderful book on the Psalms, he writes this. He says, we must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. The way of prayer is not to cover our unlovely emotions so that they will appear respectable, but to expose them so that they can be used and listed in the work of the kingdom. And Peterson's point is this. Instead of lashing out in anger at someone who has hurt us, we are able to take those emotions of anger and hatred and frustration and pain to God and pray them to him and say, God, I'm so angry with what this person has done. I'm so hurt by what this person has done. Our prayer life should always begin with where we are, not where we think we should be, not with who we think we, but prayer is the place to bring those rawest of emotions. And then they're actually being able to be transformed and it changes us. We cry out to God in anger and hurt and frustration and allow him to change us so that we can begin to seek the good of the person. Even if that seeking of their welfare, of their good, only makes them maybe more frustrated with us. That's the first thing. It, it, it allows us to begin where we're at. Secondly, though, prayer actually then allows us to do this not in our own strength. Because we cannot do this kind of love on our own. Right? If, if you do it on your own or you do it in your own strength, you'll end up in a couple, one of two different places. Either you'll end up sort of self-righteous and proud, or you'll look at me loving my enemies. I'm showing them, which is not love. That's not the kind of love that we're called to. Or on the other side, if you try to do this in your own strength, you end up either despairing or revengeful. Right? You, you either just say, God, like you, you've abandoned me. You don't care for me. Look at how these people treat me. And you end up despairing. Or you just sort of give up on the whole thing altogether and say, I'm, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to get back at them. Which isn't love either. Instead, we love prayerfully. We say, God, I'm, I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated at so-and-so right now. Would you bless them in their work? in their family, in their lives. Give them joy, maybe even repentance, but either way, help me to love them and to see them as you see them. Just hard work. We love prayerfully. Uh, we have to. It's the only way that we can do this. Uh, the next thing we see is that we also, we love generously. We love generously. Uh, Jesus says in verse 30, he says, Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. It's incredible Genesis spirit here, an open-handedness. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you, Jesus says? <laughs> For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good, good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend from those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same. And this is, I think, where Jesus really highlights the different level of love that he's calling us to as the church, as his family, as the community. Is This is a love that goes beyond. This is, this is a different kind of love. Jesus is basically saying, look, if your best friend needs to borrow your car because hers broke down 
and you loan her your car, like that's great, you should do that, that's wonderful, but that's, that is just what it is to be a friend. That's what best friends do for one another. He's saying, I'm telling you though, take that best friend level of love and care and extend it to even those who aren't your friends, those who can't pay you back, even to those who might be your enemies. Now, without wanting it all to soften Jesus' words or teaching here, let me also be clear though what this doesn't mean because I think this text has sometimes been misunderstood. This doesn't mean that we are to be naive or to put ourselves in situations where we foolishly endanger ourselves or others. Nor does loving our enemies mean that we continually let someone sin against us or sin against others. That is not love. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he isn't just saying, take it endlessly. He is saying, don't make it worse. Don't retaliate. Don't escalate things. But listen, you are not loving someone. You are not loving someone by letting them repeatedly sin against you. That is not love, and it is not okay. And this morning, if you are someone who is being abused or exploited, in some way, or you know someone who is, please seek help. Talk talk to me. Talk to Pastor Holly. Tell someone. It is not loving to allow someone to continually sin against you. That is not the definition of love. So we love prayerfully. We love generously. And then finally, we love mercifully. Verse 35, Jesus says this. He keeps going, but again, he repeats, love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. God is kind. He's kind not to the good people, He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil people. And then Jesus says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Be kind, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now that last verse, verse 37, is the one verse that probably most people in our culture today, they may not know a lot about verses, but most people know that verse, right? Judge not lest you be judged. Don't, don't judge me, right? Jesus said it. And I want to just dig into that for just a moment. First of all, what, is that, what does Jesus mean? It, it doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't regularly remind one another, especially inside of Jesus' community, inside the local church. It doesn't mean that we don't remind one another of how it is like us to act, that when we see one another acting in ways that don't align with Jesus' kingdom, that don't align with his value, that don't align with his design, that we don't call one another and say, remember, this is how it is like us to act. That's not what Jesus is saying when he says, don't judge. Because right? it's not loving to look the other way when you see someone self-destructing. Like imagine if you knew a bridge was out on the road up ahead, but you're like, you know, I don't want to bother anyone. And yeah, I'm not, I haven't always been the best driver in my life either. And so you just let car after car careen off the cliff. That is not love. Jesus' ethical love calls us to remind one another regularly, this is how it is like us to act as a community. But what Jesus does mean is what he is saying is don't condemn one another. 
Don't accuse one another. Don't, don't just criticize one another or always be pointing out faults. As Eugene Peterson puts it, verse 37, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. We respond mercifully to one another with kindness. And Jesus goes on to make this point really vividly. He tells this little parable, this story, uh, which is meant to be a, a moment of incredible humor in the midst of his sermon. He says, imagine that there is a person who has a log, a two by four, stuck into their face. I mean, this is a gaping, bleeding flesh wound of something happening there. And they all the while are trying to brush an eyelash off of someone else's face. And again, Jesus is, is trying to be funny in this moment. We should, we should laugh here. You almost picture like a Three Stooges sketch. I mean, you can picture it, right? The molar or curl, one of those giant things stuck in their eye, and they're trying to fix someone else's tiny flaw. It's designed to make us laugh how absurd, how ridiculous that is, but then quickly becomes sober because this thing happens all the time. All the time. And C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little essay called The Trouble with X. And in it, he points out that there are those uh, frustrating people in our lives who are always causing us trouble, who are always making things difficult, who always are sort of causing our plans to shipwreck and not work as well as we would like because they're just so stubborn or they're just so frustrating. You know, it could be a boss, it could be a coworker, it could be a spouse, a child, a parent, a teammate. I mean, you know who that person is in your life. We all have that person. And we find ourselves trying to change them and it's incredibly frustrating and the conversation doesn't go well and they don't see what is so obvious to us. There's a speck there, can't you see it? But then Lewis turns the whole thing back on us. He turns the whole thing upside down. And he writes, and I just want to read this section from you. This is, it's in his little collection called God in the Dock. And it's just too good not to just read you out a couple of these paragraphs. It's a little bit longer, but I just want you to hear these words from Lewis. He writes this. He said, I said that when we see how all of our plans shipwreck on the characters of other people we have to deal with, we are in one way seeing what it must be like for God, but only in one way. Because there are two because there are two respects in which God's view must be very different from ours. In the first place, he sees, like you, how all the people in your home or your job or various degrees, awkward or difficult, but when he looks into that home or factory or office, he sees one more person of the same kind, one that you never see. I mean, of course, yourself. That is the great next step in wisdom, to realize that you are also just that sort of person, you also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. He continues, he says, It's no good passing over this with some vague general admission, such as, of course, I know I have my faults. It is important to realize that there really is some really fatal flaw in you. Something which gives others that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about. Like what the advertisements called halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. And then I love this from Lewis. He says, but why, you ask? Why don't others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. 
Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know, you don't know fully. You say, I admit I lost my temper last night, but others know you are doing it all the time. You are just a bad-tempered person. You say, I admit I drank too much last Saturday, but everyone else knows that you are a habitual drunkard. Lewis is so powerful here. Just don't miss that line. It is important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you, something which gives others just the same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. You see, this, according to Lewis, and really more importantly, according to Jesus, should make us very slow to go after flaws in other people. We have so much to do to take the own log out of our eye before we should ever try to change or condemn or criticize other people. We need to listen well to what others are trying to say to us. Which brings us now finally as we wrap up to the why. We've seen the who that we are to love. That, that is our enemies supremely. That how we are to love, this with prayerfulness, with generosity, with mercy and kindness. But why do we love like this? Because it is so hard. Why do we love even when it's hardest? Why do we love like this? Well, we love like this because we have been loved like this, friends. We have been loved like this. This is how Jesus loves us. We are all that person to him. The person who has that fatal flaw, who is constantly blind to our own faults. Jesus loves us even in that state. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus considered us, that we made ourselves enemies of God, that Jesus loved us while we were still his enemies. Yet while we were his enemies, he died for us. He loved us like this with compassion and kindness and gentleness and generosity. The Apostle Paul in the, Roman, in the book of Romans chapter 5, he writes this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died, not for the good, not for the, the perfect, not for, but for the ungodly. For rarely someone will die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own what? Love. His own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we now have been declared righteous by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Jesus loved his enemies all the way to the cross. He loved me all the way to the cross where he died for me and rose again. He died for you so that you could be transformed from an enemy into a family member, a child, a son, a daughter, adopted into his family. Jesus died for me, a log-eyed hypocrite, so that in him I could be made whole. And Jesus removes the logs and the specks and is building us into a kind of community that loves even when it's hardest, that loves even when it's painful, that loves even when it's costly, because that is the way that we have been loved.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, preparing for this message, delivering this message, I realize how woefully short I fall regularly of this kind of love. I just pray that you would forgive and heal and renew and empower us to do what we in no way can do on our own, which is to love people like this, like you have loved us. But it is in that kind of loving that we find the joy that we were created for. I pray you would give us regular tastes and opportunities to love like this so we can experience the joy that kind of loving. In Jesus' name, amen.